Good morning. We are in the book of Isaiah today, Isaiah chapter 55, and we're going to look at all uh, 13 verses here in just a moment. Would you pray with me, please, as we prepare to do that? Our Lord God, thank you for being present with your people. Thank you for the ways that you speak to us, and thank you for the ways that you invite us to listen. Lord, I ask that you would arrest our attention, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds and our spirits, and that you would invite us into a place of healing and wholeness today. Lord, as we become whole people, wholly surrendered to you, our prayer is that we would not only experience your grace, but that we would also become reflections of your grace in the world around us. To your glory, amen. Going to invite you to listen actively to the text today. And as you're listening to the words of Isaiah 55, um, have a pen or a pencil handy and something to write on. And I want you to challenge yourself to answer this question as you listen to these words What sort of a God is Isaiah talking about? What sort of a God is Isaiah describing? And I want you to just sort of keep track of the characteristics of God, the traits of God, the personality of God that you notice in these verses. And then we are going to be asking today, by the time we get to the end of our time together, not only what sort of God is Isaiah talking about, but then given that this is who God is, how should we live? So uh, let's listen to God's word together. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? And why pay for food that does does you no good? Listen, and I will tell you where to get food that is good for the soul. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, for the life of your soul is at stake. I am ready to make an everlasting covenant with you, and I will give you all of the mercies and unfailing love that I promised to David. He displayed my power by being my witness and a leader among the nations. And you will also command the nations, and they will come running to obey, because I, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, have made you glorious. Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Let the people turn from their wicked deeds. Let them banish from their minds the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. My thoughts are completely different from yours, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything that you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The rain and the snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out, and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all that I want it to for it will prosper everywhere I send it. You will live in joy and peace. 
The mountains and the hills will burst into song, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Where once there were thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where briars grew, myrtles will sprout up. This miracle will bring great honor to the Lord's name. It will be an everlasting sign of his power and his love. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So as you know, if you have been around for the last uh, little bit, we have been working our way through a series on the 12 steps. And the whole premise of this series is that the 12-step movement, the movement, the recovery community, uh, has something uh, that they are reminding us of. The basis of the 12 steps uh, are all grounded in Scripture, uh, sometimes almost explicitly grounded in Scripture. And uh, the, 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 the 12-step community uh, is, is able then to sort of remind us as a church of what we should have never forgotten. Uh, they are reminding us uh, basically, what it looks like to live by grace, how we live as a people of grace. And this is a message that has helped countless alcoholics and drug addicts find wholeness and recovery over the years. And as we are reminded of these sort of steps that help us to live by grace, uh, we too can find recovery and wholeness in the face of our own addictions. And so today we are working on step three of the 12 steps. And taking the third step means that we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. Let me say that again. This is the third step. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. Now, for many of us who have been in churches for a while, that step will seem a little bit confusing. And we are under the impression, maybe we are convinced that if we are here today, that means that we have turned our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand God. Uh, maybe uh, there was a time in your life when you said a prayer and you asked Jesus into your heart and you turned your life over to him. Maybe uh, there was a challenge that you had this past week and you prayed to God and you asked God to help you find a way through that challenge. Uh, we have all sorts of ways that we think that we have turned our will and our life over to God as we understand God. In other words, we think that if we thought it, I turn my will over to you, or if we say it, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, I surrender to you. If we think it or say it, we have done it. But if that were true, if that were so, then we wouldn't be worried, would we? If we had really turned control of our life and our will over to God's care, then we wouldn't be worried. We wouldn't need to worry about our families. We wouldn't need to be worried about our health or our finances or our future. We wouldn't have to be worried about any of the millions of things that we spend our time worrying about. And so this morning we, need, we, we want to recognize that there's a, there's a, dis, there's a distinct uh, difference. There's a huge gap 
between thinking or saying something and actually doing it. And we're going to have to get clear about the difference between those two things. And there's also a difference between surrendering and sacrificing. Uh, If we're going to turn our life and our will over to the care of God, that's an invitation to surrender ourselves to God. And there's a difference between surrender and sacrifice. Sacrifice, as it turns out, is really a clever way to manage my religious life in such a way that I can look really good and also remain firmly in control. Richard Rohr calls sacrifice a nearly universal substitute for surrender. It is the most common way of renouncing self without actually having to renounce self. Right? Who can argue with a martyr? We say things like this, maybe in our minds. Maybe uh, we whisper them to our closest friends or our spouse. I mean, look at all of the time that I have sacrificed for this place. Right? Look at all that I have done. Look at all that I have sacrificed in order to keep the rules and to live a good life. Right? Look at all that I have sacrificed to serve the poor, uh, to attend services and programs. Look at the quality of my sacrifice. It's pretty impressive. It's as if we believe that if we find just the right currency in just the right amount, that somehow God will do what we want and give us what we want. And that's what Isaiah is pointing to here in our text today, right? This this sense of constant striving, constant spending, constant payment, trying to get what we want. Why are you paying money for something that won't satisfy you? And in fact, Isaiah goes on to say, in fact, the very thing that can satisfy you is only available for free. You can't buy it. It's only given to you for free. The thing that we most want is found in the free exchange, the giving and receiving of this everlasting, unfailing love that he refers to in verse 3. And so no wonder Paul can famously say, even if I give my, 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 my body to be burned... Right? Even if I sacrifice literally everything, but don't have love, I gain nothing. The thing that we want most cannot be purchased, even with our best sacrifice. So let's just stop for a moment and ask yourself the question. Ask, ask yourself the prophet's question. Why are you spending money on food that does you no good? Why would anybody spend money for something that is totally useless? And the answer, I think, I'm, you, I'm convinced that the answer is that it's because that way we remain in control. Right? We remain in control. I get to decide how much I will spend and what I will spend it on. Right? I get to decide. I'm in charge. I say what I want. I say what I like. The customer is always right. And the customer is the one with the money. The customer is the one who is willing to sacrifice the money. And the customer is always right. Control is our primary addiction. 
If you have been sitting here for the last three weeks and you're saying to yourself, I don't have any idea what my addiction is. I don't understand this at all. Right? It's perfectly sensible that other people have addictions around me, but I, I can't see my addiction. Look no further. Control is your addiction. If you are a human being, you are addicted to being in control of your life. All that remains for you now is to see the impact of that addiction. Control is our primary addiction. It drives all of our other addictions. And that's why sacrifice can never replace surrender, because sacrifice keeps our control intact. And Jesus himself points to this very problem over and over again when he quotes the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the Old Testament prophet Hosea, who himself saw the problem already emerging in his day. And Jesus says, look, I see you coming to the temple. I see you doing the best sacrifices. I see you bringing the best animals and, and you dress it up and you look fantastic doing it and you're following all the rules and you're doing everything right. And he says, but you treat each other like garbage. And so I don't want your stinking sacrifices. And he, he literally says, don't bring me any more sacrifices. Jesus says that. I don't want it. Isaiah is saying here that he's he's inviting us to set aside this currency of sacrifice that leaves self in charge and surrender instead to this unfailing love of God. Stop spending your money on things that you can't keep and that don't make any difference. Now, it's easy for us intellectually to get that, right? Surrender is different from sacrifice. Yes, I can understand the intellectual distinction. Uh, surrender puts God in charge. Sacrifice keeps me in charge. I can understand that difference as well. And it's easy to see that in others. We can look around and say, oh my goodness, really, really good at sacrifice, not so good at surrender, right? Um, a suicide bomber is really good at sacrifice, but hasn't surrendered at all to the actual will of God. A codependent is a person who is always incredibly sacrificial in their relationship with an addict. right? But because the disease of codependency creates such a need for the other person to be sick, every selfless, loving act of the codependent is actually a clever manipulation, a self-serving effort to keep the status quo. right? The, the mantra of the codependent is, I need to be needed, and so I will do everything I can to keep you needy. And it will look sacrificial and loving along the way. A Pharisee, Jesus says, is sacrificial. A Pharisee has given up an incredible amount of their life, their time, their talent. They've brought their best resources to the effort of being pure under the law. But they can't even recognize the presence of God when God shows up in their midst. And in fact, uh, not only do they not recognize God, but instead of surrendering to God... They lead the charge and crucify God. That proves that they are still in control. It's possible for us to see the distinction in others. Surrender versus sacrifice. We can see it in other people. Much more difficult to see it in ourselves. And even more so to not rationalize it away. You know, Jesus literally went into the temple courts and he flipped over the money changers' tables. He he turned over the booths of those who are trying to buy and sell God. 
And we like to debate the finer theological points about that story, right? While we talk about, oh my goodness, was Jesus angry? And did he sin in his anger? And what's the line between sin and anger? And is that okay? And was, is that still perfect? And what about Jesus' anger? Turning over those, uh, those tables. And as we're debating that, what are we doing? We're busy setting up the tables and resuming the exchange. We, we go right back into the place of sacrifice. So today, here's what I want to say. There are two ways that we can identify in ourselves when we have moved into a place of sacrifice instead of surrender. Two, two things to notice. And then two things that we can do to get ourselves into a place of surrender. Two things and two things. First of all, we are still living in the world of sacrifice and not surrender if, number one, we have resentment. And number two, when we are worried. If we have resentment or when we are worried, those are two signs that we have moved into the world of sacrifice, that our control addiction is showing up. First, number one, resentment. You don't need a preacher to tell you this, right? You don't need a preacher to stand up here and say to you, what happens when you don't get what you think you paid for? How many of us, right, when you uh, think that you've purchased something and then the thing that you think you purchased isn't what you, what you wanted or you don't get it at all or the service isn't what you expected it to be, how many of us say, oh, that's all right, that's perfectly fine, right? I, I, you know, I have money to burn, that's fine. Um, and we don't do that, right? We're, as consumers, our training is get what you pay for, right? Make sure that you get the, the most out of your money. Get your value out of it. Right? And resentment comes when, when you think that you paid for a, a happy meal at the drive-thru, and then you get home and open the bag, and you look in there, and you discover that God didn't put the french fries and the prize inside the bag. God, I have been so good to you. I've done everything right. Where are my fries? Right? Is that too much to ask? And, This is what Isaiah is saying, right? Paying for food that doesn't do me any good. Paying for food that does me no good. And then sooner or later, I thought I was buying something that would do me some good. I thought I was buying something important. And it doesn't doesn't deliver at all. So you might resent God for demanding that you give up so much in the first place. You might resent others for not appreciating your sacrifices. You might resent others for not sacrificing as much as you do. You might resent others and God when others get things that you don't get and they don't appear to sacrifice at all. When I see the hint of resentment in me, I'm in the world of sacrifice and not surrender. And there's, there's, there's a control addiction to take on. Second thing is, we worry when we are in sacrifice mode. We only worry when we are in sacrifice mode. Uh, when we have fear about the future, when we have apprehension, uh, it all sets in when I realize that no matter how much I sacrifice, no matter what I do, I cannot be in control enough to manage the challenge that I'm facing. I don't have what it takes to control my world. 
right? In the, in the, in the world of sacrifice, we worry about scarcity. In some ways, worry is a wonderful gift. If you find yourself worrying, um, the hardest thing that you can do, right, don't ever say, oh, i got to stop worrying. I'm going to stop worrying. I'm worried. I'm worried. Don't stop worrying. Right? And then you're just worried that you're worrying. And now you're worried that you're worried that you're worrying. Right? And worry just keeps building. Uh, worry can be a wonderful gift. That If in the moment when you find yourself worrying about something, instead of saying, oh, my goodness, I have to just stop worrying. I have to stop worrying. Don't think about pink elephants. Don't do it. And, right, don't worry. Instead of worrying about that, say to yourself, this wonderful gift is putting a spotlight on some place in my life that I have not yet surrendered. This, this, this worry is putting a spotlight on some place in my life that I have not yet surrendered to God because I do not yet trust God's goodness in my life with this thing. Worry is a sign that I'm in sacrifice mode. So do you hear this reassurance of Isaiah? He says, yes, you have done wrong. Yes, you have hurt God. Yes, you have hurt yourself. Yes, you have hurt others. Uh, and, 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 and he says the out the, is not to try to fix it. Right? The out is, is, is not to sacrifice something, give something up, bring, build an altar and sacrifice to God and, and tell God how sorry you feel. Give God something that he wants. No, in verse 7, what does he say? He says, simply turn to the Lord. Right? All God wants is that turning back, that turning over, that returning, that surrender to himself. I think the story of the prodigal son gives us both of these uh, versions of sacrifice instead of surrender. Right? The, the, the youngest son, the, the, the prodigal, what does the prodigal do? The prodigal looks at his dad and says, Dad, you are dead to me. I'm going to consider you as though you are dead. I want what's mine. I'm going to grab the family money, and I'm going to go pursue my dreams. And the young son takes off, and he squanders uh, his fortune. And pretty soon the money goes away and the dreams dry up and he realizes that if he is going to survive, he has to go back home again. And so he starts rehearsing to himself, what do I do? What do I do? I'm walking back home. It's the only way I can survive. And when I get there, I'm going to grovel. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beg. I'm going to plead. I'm going to tell my father how sorry I am, how wrong I was, that, that that was a miserable mistake that I made. And I'm going to, uh, I'll, I'll tell him that I'll work really, really hard on the farm for no money at all. I'll just be like a, a hired guy. That'll, that'll, he's in sacrifice mode. Do you hear it? Once you see the distinction, you, it's everywhere. There, he's in sacrifice mode. And the father sees him coming. And before the prodigal can even get a word off of his lips, he's caught up in an embrace. And there's joy and there's celebration and there's welcome home. There's no sacrifice needed. Just returning. Just turning his life over to the Father again. And then the older brother sees this irresponsible display this permissive attitude of the father. And he gets all, what? Resentful. What about me? Haven't you noticed how sacrificial I've been? I've been with you all of these years. I've never done anything wrong. I've never dishonored your name. I've never told you to go die. I've never, I've never, I've never, and I've always, I've always, I've, I've sacrificed everything for you. And he can't get to the celebration. 
When my life is caught in resentment, when my life is caught in worry, I'm in sacrifice mode. And sacrifice just feeds my control addiction. So two things. How do I begin to take that step of surrender? First of all, and this one is difficult. It's difficult. It may be impossible. But here's the step. I begin to separate who God is from who I think God is. Begin to separate who God is, who God reveals himself to be, who God says that he is, from who I think God is. It, to the degree that you can. I, uh, I understand subjectivity is always in it. We always have filters and we always have our interpretation. I understand that. And, and, I also know that, that every one of us arrive at this place in our life with mental models about who God is and those, in those models and those images and those, and those, those um, perceptions of who God is and how God is like, don't operate at a thoughtful level, but they operate at an emotional level. Uh, we react to God as if uh, what we believe about God is true. And so uh, uh, the way that we relate to God usually comes... Uh, out of the ways that we related to early authorities in our life. right? We relate to God at an emotional level, at the level of a mental model, the way that we related to early authorities in our life. And so if dad is distant, we relate to God as if God is distant. If we had a teacher who was harsh and punitive, we relate to God as if God is harsh and punitive. If we have a grandfather who is permissive and kindly, God is permissive and kind. We have, a, we have an emotional hardwiring where we relate to God as the ultimate authority figure, the way that we learn to relate to authority figures early in our life. And so there are two main distortions that we end up with. One is that God is mean and vengeful and untrustworthy. Right? Somebody said to me the other day, man, if I turned my life over to God, he would smoke me. And he would be right to do it. Right? That, that somehow I can't trust God with my life. That God doesn't have my best in, in, at, at heart. That God isn't for me. That God isn't kind. That God isn't love. That somehow God is mean and vindictive and he's just waiting to step on me and to kill my joy and to rob my life of all happiness and purpose and future. Man, if I surrender to him. And yet, what it, God says that, look, if you surrender to him, your life will be filled with joy and with peace. And he has this picture of, of the, 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 the mountains are singing and the trees are clapping along. If I'm going to take the step of surrendering my life to God, somehow I've got to get out of the picture of God as mean and untrustworthy and unkind and vengeful and vindictive. I've got to get out of that emotional response and I've got to get into God is going to fill my life with joy and with peace and the mountains and hills are singing for joy. There's a second distortion that we get. And that is that somehow God is my rescue crew. God is my helper. God is a part of the team that I have put together for my life. Right? And so we have a way of praying. And we say, God, I'd like you to help me with. God, please keep me safe. God, please deliver me. 
God, please make this go well. God, please. God, please. And somehow, as long as what we are asking isn't immoral and isn't designed to hurt anybody, we think, well, God should do that. right? God should come through. But here's, here's, the, here's the challenge. Right? Asking God to do my will is very, very different than surrendering my will to God. He says that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And his ways are higher than our ways. His plans are better and more majestic and more perfect than our plans. God's thoughts and ways and plans are so much beyond any of us that we can't even imagine it, he says. Sometimes we need to be jostled a little bit outside of our assumptions about God. That's why I asked you to jot down your thoughts about the kind of God that was getting revealed in Isaiah 55. Who is this God? Because if the God that is revealed isn't nice, or isn't smart, or isn't merciful, then please don't turn your life over to that God. It would be a disaster. On the other hand, if you see God's beauty and God's, God's majesty, and God's generosity, and God's power, and God's wisdom, and God's faithfulness, and God's goodness, and God's perfect love, then why would you not turn your life over to that God? And so the, the first step is to begin to separate, to the degree that I can, my sort of emotional, mental model, deeply held assumptions about how I relate to God as an authority figure, from who God reveals himself to be. Ways are higher than our ways. God is good. And then finally, we'll wrap up with this thought. Surrendering, the step to take in surrendering, surrendering is associated with gratitude. Surrender is associated with gratitude. It's very, very difficult to have a sense of gratitude and a sense of resentment uh, in the same heart. You can't do that. Uh, I love the picture at the end of this chapter, where God's name is honored. And you have this, this image of a whole nation just honoring God and giving him gratitude for his restoration of his people, for his forgiveness, for his goodness, for his lavishness. This whole nation is standing there and giving God thanks for that. And other nations see what God has done, and they begin to become drawn to the person of God. I love this picture of gratitude. And I was thinking about uh, how hard it is to teach a child to say thank you at the appropriate times. Have you ever tried to teach a child to say thank you? Now, maybe some of you have perfect children, and they always knew, right? You said, you know, they opened up a present, and I'll tell Grandpa thank you for the beautiful socks, right? Oh, thank you, you know, and there's gratitude for the present. There's, uh, how, how hard is it, right? Even in a child, there's that sort of sense of willful control, right? That control addiction is already at work. And if I say thank you, if I show you gratitude, somehow I am acknowledging that you have done something for me that I couldn't do for myself. And so gratitude comes against control. Gratitude comes against uh, our will to do for self. And therefore, gratitude opens up spaces of grace 
in our lives. The turning over, the surrendering of my life is an action. It isn't just a thought. It's not just a prayer that I say. It's not just something that I believe that I have done. But turning over my life, surrendering my life and my will to God as I understand God is a a persistent action that I engage in. As we go through the rest of this series, the rest of these steps are going to give us practice in that surrender. The rest of the steps are going to take us beyond words and into actions. And, And... Therefore, the rest of our series is going to bump up hard against our control addiction. But maybe you already have seen some actions that you can take. Maybe as you've been sitting here today, God has already been stirring in you, and you already sort of know what surrendering your will in your life to God would look like. You, are, you may not know everything, but there is a clear step that you could take. As you sit there today, um, what is the step? What is the action of surrender? In my own life, uh, thinking about and preparing for this series, one of the things that I had to acknowledge was that there are parts of my life that are not in control. Parts of my life that I'm powerless to overcome. And I had to become willing to surrender myself to God. And I had to make an action. I had to make a decision. I had to do something that would allow me to say, this is a step of, of turning myself over, of returning, of reconnecting, of coming back, of surrendering. And so the step that I decided that I would take for myself is to connect with a counselor. And the counselor that I connected with, I shared with you uh, the other week, uh, is somebody that is challenging me in ways that are very uncomfortable for me. Challenging me to look at myself and my God and my world very differently than the ways that I normally look at myself and my God and my world. It's very uncomfortable. And that, 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 that gives me a hint that in some ways I'm surrendering something that I really want to hold on to. And it's really clear to me that I can't stand here and ask you to surrender. I can't ask you to take a step that is uncomfortable if I'm not willing to do that as well. This isn't going to feel good initially. What is the step? As you sit today and think and and consider before God, what is he inviting you to do to put surrender into action? Maybe it's forgiving somebody in your life. Maybe it's hosting somebody in your home. Maybe it's uh, taking on the challenge of faith walking or an oasis group. Maybe it's sharing your faith with somebody. Maybe it's joining a 12-step group. Maybe it's putting off a major purchase. Maybe it's writing a letter of gratitude. It's not just to say, I'm going to stop worrying, but it's to say, if I was to stop worrying about that, this is what I would do differently. This is how I would act differently if I wasn't a worried person. Right? It isn't just saying, I will no longer resent so-and-so, but it's to say, if I was no longer to resent so-and-so, this is how I would act if I was not a resentful person. What is the action? What is the step?
Maybe it means keeping my mouth shut and not giving vent to every complaint that I have. Maybe it means opening my mouth and saying what needs to be said for somebody who doesn't have a voice. What is the action of surrender? We're going to pause here for a moment. We're going to pray. We're going to invite the uh, ushers to receive our offering. And as the offering is being taken, let me invite you to stay actively engaged in pursuing that question. What is the action of surrender? What does it look like to go beyond a thought, beyond a word, beyond a prayer, and put into action this turning over of my life to God? What is the action for you? Uh, spend, spend that time uh, pursuing that question as we worship him. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, for these moments, we ask for a special gift of insight from your Spirit. We ask for clarity and for courage. Lord, help us to see what step we would take to actively surrender ourselves to you. Lord, even if we aren't willing today to take that step, help us to at least see it. And we pray for your Spirit's voice to be clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, would you wait on us for our morning offering?